Pineapple Pizza Podcast discusses the histories, cultures, and beliefs of regions around the world. These stories often contain mature and sometimes disturbing content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Pineapple Pizza Podcast, where we serve up delicious slices of mythology, cryptozoology, and urban legends. It's an interesting combination of flavors. Weird, but it works. This week is going to be a special storytime episode from my podcast, The Yule Crime, where we're going to be sharing a story of an unsolved murder that took place in Australia. So we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Ye Old Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hello. How are you? I am hot and tired. Yeah, you went for a long walk, right? I did go for a long walk. How many miles? Um, today, I walked two and a half miles. Nice. Are you going to do another walk later? It's supposed to rain at oh, three. Oh, rain. Yeah. So probably not. But that's not too bad. I'm already pretty close to my step goal for the day. So. All right. What do we have today? What's on the menu? Today, we are going to be discussing the mood. Oh, that checks out. That's a, that's in our wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. What kind of murder? Specifically, the Gatton murders. Have you heard of those before? No. Okay. Awesome. So it's the Gatton murders, and this is for Shannon and Christina of the One Crime at a Time podcast. Mm-hmm. They requested this after contributing to our equipment fund. So, hey, thanks, guys. I was very excited to do this case because I did not know about it. Awesome. The information was pulled from the following sources, a 2019 unsolved Facebook post, a 2017 Daily News article by Mara Balson. A 2017 Huffington Post article, 2015 Daily Mail Australia article by Candace Sutton, 2013 mm. WikiTree article by Paul Middleton, Wikipedia, and a wow, amazing article. So is this international? It is international. <laughs> and links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. Yay. All right. Let's travel by boat, since that was pretty much the primary source of travel before the 1900s. Yes. <laughs> the town of Gatton in Queensland, Australia is small with around 7,000 residents today mm-hmm. and located 60 miles or 97 kilometers west of Brisbane and located between the cities of Ipswich in the east and Toowoomba in the west. I love all of those names. I know, right? Ipswich. Yeah. And during the tail end of the 1800s, it was a popular place to stop for anyone traveling to Darling Downs farming region in southern Queensland via road or rail. Okay. So they had a nice like train station. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Because like the train was like a newer thing that had been developed during the earlier 1800s. And it was a pretty popular stopping point on the way. Awesome. It also happens to be the location of the most famous unsolved murder in colonial Australian history. Ooh, 
So the Murphy family lived on a farm at Blackfellows Creek, which was eight miles or 13 kilometers outside of Gatton. The family consisted of Daniel and Mary Murphy and their 10 children, although not all of their children were still living at home. The two eldest boys, Michael and Daniel Jr., were currently not living at home. Their eldest son, Michael, worked in Westbrook on a government farm, but would travel home on Christmas to spend time with his family. And Daniel was a police constable in Brisbane. So when he worked on a government farm, he was only allowed one vacation, and that was Christmas? So this particular case takes place around Christmas. So that's why I noted that he was coming home for Christmas. Okay, so hopefully he had more than just one vacation. (laughs) Yeah, I think he had more than one vacation. This was the only day off this entire year that you get. So enjoy it, my son. Right. Government says one. (laughs) (laughs) Only one. So on the evening of December 26, 1898, which is Boxing Day, for those familiar with the English holiday, Mm -hmm. three of the Murphy siblings, Ellen, whose real name was Teresa, who was 18, Nora, 27, and Michael, 29, took a sulky, which is a lightweight, two-wheeled horse-drawn vehicle, which is typically only for one person. So kind of like a rickshaw, but horse-drawn. So they just wanted to stress out the horses. I get it. I get it. Yep. So they took the sulky and left their family's farm around 8 p.m. to attend a dance at the Divisional Board Hall in Gatton. Michael had agreed to accompany his sisters and act as chaperone after taking Ellen to the Mount Sylvia races in Kathy earlier that day. Their mother is quoted as saying that, quote, when the girls left, each had a laugh on her face, end quote. So they were excited. Mm -hmm. They They were very excited. As these dances typically went well into the evening, at first, no one was worried about the fact that they had yet to return. But when 7.30 a.m. hit and there was still no sign of them, the family began to worry that something had happened. You have to keep in mind this was a farming family, so they were probably up at like 5, getting ready to like... When the sun came up. Yeah, to like milk cows and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So Mary sent her son-in-law, William McNeil, out to find them. McNeil, who was married to the eldest daughter, Polly, began to search on horseback, following the distinctive tracks of the sulky, which had a wobbly wheel. So the tracks would have been very distinctive. Mm-hmm. In fact, the sulky belonged to McNeil. And when he spotted the tracks along Tent Hill Road, about four miles or 6.5 kilometers outside the farm, he discovered that they deviated from the road along a slip rail. Uh-oh. A slip rail is a section of fence where the rails can be removed. So you can, it can allow vehicles to easy access to paddocks. So it's kind of like what we would consider like a door for a fence nowadays. So you could just remove so they, it was like a like a quote unquote hidden road. Yeah. Like a shortcut looking thing. Yeah. It was basically just like take some of these out and you can easily go down this trail or drive or whatever. Like a dirt road. Yep. Okay. The tracks led him to a neighbor's wooded pasture, and that's where he found them. No. At first glance, he thought they were all sleeping. But as he drew closer on his horse, he was horrified to discover that that was far from the truth. Nora, the elder of the two sisters, was found under a tree laid out on a rug. She had been strangled and her skull had been smashed in. Oh, God. Okay. The bodies of Ellen and Michael were located a couple yards away, lying back to back within a few feet of each other. Their skulls had also been smashed in. Oh, jeez. And trigger warning, there will be mentions of sexual assault in the next minute. So if this is something that will upset you, please skip ahead. 
Both of the women's hands had been bound behind their backs with handkerchiefs and were found with semen on their legs and clothes and showed obvious signs of rape. One of the weirdest details was that all three of the siblings had their legs carefully placed so that their feet all pointed west. Ooh. Yeah. The perpetrators of the crime had even gone so far as to shoot the horse in the head. No. And its body lay where it fell next to the overturned sulky. Upon further investigation of the bodies, it was discovered that Michael had what appeared to be a bullet wound to the head. But the medical examiner who performed the autopsy was unable to find the bullet. Michael was also found in possession of his purse, which it was noted that he had it on him when the trio left the dance. Inside, the 15 shillings, or around 100 pounds today, that he'd had on him were missing. It also looked as though his hands had been tied as well at one point with a nearby breaching strap before being untied, most likely to get access to the purse in question, which was found nearby. So it pretty much looks like just a robbery and convenient assault. Yes. William quickly sounded the alarm after riding into town. Oddly enough, his first stop wasn't the police station, but the local Gilbert Hotel, which today is known as the Imperial Hotel. He notified the 40-some horrified guests of the grisly scene he'd just left before proceeding on to the police station. Around 9.15 a.m., William informed Acting Sergeant William Errol of the murders, and the two made their way back to the crime scene, which was one and a half miles or 2.4 kilometers outside Gatton in an area known as Moran's Paddock. At this time in history, Gatton only had a population of around 450, so the local police felt it would be an open and shut case to find the killer or killers. Yeah. In fact, the lay magistrate which at this time would have been considered like the lead investigator, assured their mother, Mary, that the identity of her children's killer slash killers would be solved by nightfall. Oh, that's... And as you can imagine, this just wasn't the case. No. Did he forget that uh, he's a transit stop? Yeah. It turned out that the Murphy siblings never did dance that night. After arriving at the dance hall at 9, 10 p.m., they found that the lights were off and the man who had coordinated the party was in the process of closing the doors. With no party to attend and no further reason to stay, Michael simply turned the cart around and began to head back home. And as we know, they never made it. The investigation was a disaster from the very beginning. After Sergeant Errol and Williams spent 30 minutes examining the scene of the crime, Errol returned to Gatton to send a telegram to Brisbane. It took two days for that telegram to reach the police department in Brisbane, which left the first few vital days of detective work to the local police who had never handled a crime like this before. Mm. This is such a common thing with a lot of, like even today, like Mm -hmm. smaller towns just gumming up and messing up investigations because they've had traffic stops and junks, mm-hmm. not murder. Yeah. Even though the crime scene was immediately closed off, people in town flocked to the area to do what bored people do best, stand around and gawk. Yeah. They destroyed vital evidence, such uh-huh. as any distinguishable footprints around the bodies that could have led yeah. to the murderer, mm-hmm. and screwed up the scent so badly that dogs couldn't be used for any sort of tracking efforts. Awesome. Did they take things? It didn't say if they took anything, but I wouldn't be surprised. I keep remembering that, like, cake from that one crime scene. And the raisins that people kept taking, which is fucking gross. It's horrifying. 
not to mention the autopsies themselves, Great. which were performed by Dr. Von Losberg, who was the government medical officer at Ipswich. And he was he performed the autopsies under the supervision of Sergeant Errol. The bodies had been moved to the hotel around 4 p.m. on December 27th. So that was the day they were discovered. And he quickly began his examination. Dr. Losberg believed that the murders took place sometime between 10 p.m. on December 26th and 4 a.m. on the morning of the 27th. Based on the impact, Dr. Losberg believed that Michael had been struck on the right side of the head after being shot, while Ellen's skull had been fractured after being struck twice on the left side of the head. Based on how they were found, he theorized that they'd been sitting upright and back to back at the time they were attacked. Okay, so it might have been one one big hit and then they hit her a second time. Or two people. It's yeah, it's hard to say. Time. Yeah. Trigger warning, the extent of the damage done to the victims is going to be discussed and the Thank sexual you. nature of the crime may be triggering. Please skip ahead if you need to. I can't skip ahead, can I? I you can't. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Dr. Losberg found that Nora had been beaten so hard on the left side of her head that her brain was actually hanging out of her skull. Oh, God. Okay. Not to mention she'd had a harness strap around her neck that indicated she'd been strangled to death. As I mentioned before, Nora, and additionally Ellen, had been raped. And based on the damage, he believed the act had been done with the brass handle of a riding whip. Oh, God. Ellen had also been bludgeoned in a similar way to her sister, but not to the extent that Nora had. But Nora had the two, she had the more severe bludgeoning, and Ellen only had been hit twice, but not to the extent that stuff was coming out. I wonder if she died faster or gave up or, I don't know. Who knows? The reports were so inconsistent that all three victims had to be exhumed to conduct a second autopsy. It was during the second autopsy, which was ordered by Chief Inspector Stewart, that the missing bullet, which was the ultimate cause of his death, was finally found in Michael's head. Did he miss that? Yep. Awesome. It was determined that the bludgeoning he received had been in an attempt to hide it. Oh, okay. So they smashed it in. Yeah. Due to the state of decomposition at the time of the second autopsy, it was hard to say if the girl's sexual attack had been conducted in the manner that Dr. Losberg theorized. So it's hard to know if it was truly as severe as he thought it was. I mean, it's severe anyway. Yeah. I'm not not discounting what happened to them. It's all bad. It's all bad. But it was hard to know the severity of it. Yeah. I kind of really, really hope that they were already dead. Same. I really do. The head of the Criminal Investigative Bureau of Brisbane, Inspector Frederick Burkwart, traveled personally to Gatton to lead the investigation and find the Murphy's killer slash killers. Mm-hmm. Upon arriving at Gatton, a telegram to his superiors back in Brisbane read as follows, quote, circumstances point to premeditation, details most atrocious. There is so far nothing to lay hold of, end quote. A few days after the grisly discovery, the local Toowoomba Chronicle reported that the people of Gatton had started referring to the case as the Gatton Mystery, alluding to the fact that everyone had already given up any hope that it would be solved and justice mm-hmm. would be served. Heartbreaking. As it usually does, suspicion immediately turned towards the Murphy family itself, including the son-in-law who had discovered the bodies, William McNeil. It was reported that he had a tricky relationship with his in-laws. 
but he had a solid alibi during the time the murders took place and was soon ruled out as a suspect. A woman from a nearby farm reported hearing gunshots and screams of father around the time the murders were believed to have taken place, which sparked rumors that there may have been an incestuous relationship between the father and his two daughters and that he'd killed them to cover it up. Other rumors circulated around the town priest, while another cast suspicion on the remaining seven Murphy children. One rumor even went so far as to suggest that it was revenge against Polly, William McNeil's wife, by a jilted former suitor. Still others believed it had something to do with corruption in the police force. No, that's never happened before. What? And it doesn't happen today. Nope. Okay. Other rumors about town circulated about Michael, the lone male victim of the slayings. There was talk that he'd gotten around. Okay. According to an article written by Paul Middleton, Michael Murphy was known as a womanizer and a predator of very young women. Fun! And fathered at least one child out of wedlock, but it was rumored there were more. Mm -hmm. One woman he'd reportedly gotten pregnant died during childbirth, which would certainly have been the motive to see him killed by her angry family. Yeah. Nora, the eldest of the slain sisters, was also the target of some revenge. Apparently, oh. she was fairly cruel to a local school teacher, even going so far as to harass her at her home and send damning letters about her to a Queensland newspaper. Most. The teacher went mad, and her sister vowed to get back at Nora for what she'd done to her. This family is not great. No. Well, didn't deserve to die that way. Yeah. But like, not great. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't Nora the one that was more severely beaten? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And she, she was the older of the two. Uh-huh. The investigators themselves believed it was a crime of opportunity committed by some transients as they moved through town. They focused their efforts on a couple of men with pretty long rap sheets that had arrived in Gatton shortly before the murders took place. One of the men, a man named Richard Burgess, 39, had been released from prison a few weeks prior to arriving in Gatton on December 10th after spending time in and out of jail as a career criminal. What's your career? I'm a criminal. I'm a criminal. Here's my business card. (laughs) Prior to his release, he'd been incarcerated for assaulting a woman in 1897. Awesome. He happened to be charged for saddle theft shortly after the Murphy murders. In his own words, Burgess claimed, quote, I was born to be hanged, end quote. And several witnesses claimed that he was the killer. A local farmer claimed that Burgess told him that Michael had been shot before it had been reported by the news, while another told police that Burgess had told him about three dead bodies in Gatton before news of the crime had even reached where he lived. Very interesting. Unfortunately for police, he had a solid alibi during the night of the murder as he was over 20 miles or 32 kilometers away at the time. Of course he was. Another suspect, who many to this day believe is most likely the culprit, was a 20-year-old man named Thomas Day, who also went by the alias of Thomas Ferner or Theo Farmer. After recently getting hired by a local butcher shop run by A.G. Clark, he had taken up residence at a shack not far from the crime scene. The police never had enough evidence to nail him as the suspect. Dale is also believed to be responsible for the murder of 15-year-old Alfred Stephen Hill, who was killed in Oxley a few weeks before the Murphy murders. The boy's horse had also been shot in the head, which was eerily similar to what happened to Murphy's horse. 
Yep, that is quite the quinky dink. So five months and 3,000 interviews later, no charges were ever filed and the case continued to remain unsolved. Awesome. Great. In 1899, the Royal Commission conducted an investigation regarding the handling of the case during their review of the standards of policing. Mm-hmm. Inspector Urquhart was quoted during an inquiry regarding the case as saying, quote, we have failed because from the very outset, we had no chance of success, end quote. Well, at least he's honest. During the inquest, Dr. Lossberg refused to admit to any negligence on his part. Oh, sure, sure. Not him, though. It's fine. Yeah. Even though there was evidence proving otherwise, he denied that he told anyone that he'd completed the autopsy. He explained that he'd merely given them a quick examination due to the fact that he'd been suffering from blood poisoning at the time. Oh, blood poisoning. Mm -hmm. Very common. Very common. Mr. Wiggins, JP, which stands for Justice of the Peace, mm-hmm. testified that he'd placed the order for burial after believing Dr. Losberg had finished his postmortems, even though he hadn't given him any orders for burial at the time, believing that final orders would be arriving from Ipswich. So he assumed they were done. So he's like, let's just wrap this up. Yep. Bury him. Awesome. Sub-Inspector Galbraith testified that he was told by Dr. Losberg that he'd completed the autopsies and was unable to find the bullet. So it's just a bunch of people not wanting to do the paperwork and yeah. just get, get it done. Like, oh yeah, he told me about that. Yeah, oh, he said he was done. Yeah, no, they said they were done with the body, so I'll check out. A clerk named George Baines testified that he had been present during the conversation between Dr. Losberg and Galbraith and that the doctor had not mentioned completing the autopsies, his supposed blood poisoning, or any request to not bury the bodies. In response, Dr. Losberg stated that he'd never seen clerk Baines in his life. Fun. These people are fun. Yeah. I've never seen that man before in my life. (laughs) Yeah, I heard him. I heard him and he said he didn't say anything. I'm backing him up. I've never seen you. That's my purse. I don't know you. Pretty much. (laughs) The Royal Commission laid into Sergeant Errol at the inquest for his complete ineptitude in handling the murders. Errol took zero notes at the crime scene, didn't interview anyone who was present, and Mm -hmm. didn't secure the site to prevent looky-loos from destroying any and all evidence. Yeah. Errol had requested to have the telegram to the Brisbane Commissioner of Police marked urgent, but was told that police didn't have any sort of authority in sending urgent telegrams. What? Yeah. This was later proved completely false, especially when they also pointed out the fact that instead of returning immediately to the crime scene, he instead waited at the telegram office for a reply. Because it was a holiday, even though the telegram arrived at the Brisbane Commission at 12.52 p.m. on December 27th, no one actually opened it until 9 a.m. the next day on December 28th. Awesome. In regards to Michael's purse and the mystery surrounding the breaching strap, when Michael's body had been moved around 1.30 p.m. the day of the murder, it's believed that someone had untied Michael's hands to gain access to the purse, which later went missing. Hmm. The behavior of the Murphy family themselves was also suspect during the inquest. Only the son, Daniel Murphy, who was employed by the Brisbane Police Department, seemed willing to help. However, because he wasn't living at home during the time of the murders and wasn't present on Boxing Day, he was unable to give testimony on behalf of his family. Yeah, makes sense. 
It was only after a threat of a summons that the rest of the Murphy clan, which consisted of the remaining children, John, Jeremy, Patrick, William, Polly, and Catherine, consented to questioning. During the inquest, it was noted that they showed nothing but apathy and gave off the appearance that they'd rather forget about the murders than look further into who had committed them. That's not a good sign. Nope. You. Daniel did provide evidence at the commission, however. He shared how he was informed of the deaths of his siblings the day they were discovered by a family friend. He immediately applied for a three-day leave of absence to return home to Gatton, which was granted, but he missed the 1 p.m. train. After returning to the station, he visited the detectives at the criminal investigation branch to request their help. But none of the detectives were interested in taking any sort of action because they believed the murders were a hoax. After this, Daniel was able to catch the 5 p.m. train to Gatton. Okay. Inspector Urquhart, meanwhile, received Sergeant Errol's telegram, but decided to take no action after hearing the rumors that it was a hoax. Awesome. So the police just thought it was fake for a long time before they even took it seriously. Yep. Cool. At 4 p.m., he was informed that the rumors were, in fact, false. But because the information hadn't come through official channels, he didn't make the commissioner aware of the crimes until 9 p.m. on December 28th. So that was the next day. Great. The commissioner ordered Urquhart to take two of his detectives immediately to Gatton. And even though they could have taken the midnight train from Brisbane to Gatton, they instead chose to leave at 7.30 the next morning on December 29th. Yeah, it's a holiday. Why would they bother? In response to this information, the Royal Commission stated that the series of events were, quote, incomprehensible, indicative of the existence of a rotten system of policing and a culpable indifference on the part of the inspector to his duty to the public, end quote. And I'm sorry, you would think, too, at a minimum, they would try a little harder if it was the family of one of their own. Exactly. You know, like... Mm -hmm. That seems weird, especially since the brother took it so seriously and got a leave of absence and tried to get help and left as soon as he could. Yeah, like what would he gain from lying about the fact that three of his siblings had been murdered? Time off. Yeah. That's probably what what they thought. They're like, oh, well, he just wants an extended vacation. But still, I don't I wouldn't want to be alone. <laughs> yeah, sure. Knowing my siblings were murdered horrifically. When Thomas Day was brought before the commission, the now 22-year-old had been in possession of a jumper that was covered in blood the day following the murders. He claimed it was animal blood, and his boss had asked him not to wash the jumper just in case he did have something to do with the crime. Mm -hmm. Thomas ended up washing the jumper anyway until it was clean. Oh, no. He said no, but I just, I really want to make sure it looks nice before the court. This is my good jumper. Yeah, I just really wanted to look nice. I'm sorry, guys. I only got the one jumper. The hut where Thomas lived was just 300 yards or 900 feet away from the scene of the crime. And locals came forward claiming to have seen him roaming the area where the bodies were found the night before the murders took place. Gross. Police hadn't considered him a solid suspect back in 1898. And just two weeks after the murders had been committed and with no formal investigation into him, Thomas skipped town and never came back. Records show that he later enlisted in the Army in 1898 before deserting in May of 1899. Awesome. So just all around really cool guy. Mm -hmm. A year later in 1900, Thomas Day, 
who at this time was going by the moniker of Thomas Ferner, died in Sydney Hospital in New South Wales on October 25th after sustaining a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Prior to this, he left behind a note that mentioned him being present at the Gatton murders, which was published in the October 27, 1900 edition of the Western Australian newspaper. Quote, just a few words wishing to inform the police about the Gatton murder, which I suppose or hope will be found out when I am no more. I am going to my long rest, but still before I leave the world, I wish to state what I know for a certain fact, end quote. Interestingly enough, any names he would have mentioned as to who committed the crime weren't published, but the letter was finished with the following, quote, I know the public may wonder, but I do not wonder, as I am quite sure the case was to be kept quiet among the police, which I think is about time they were shown up, so hoping the Gatton affair will go ahead, end quote. He also claimed that he experienced recurring nightmares from witnessing the siblings' heads being bludgeoned. Uh, I don't doubt it. Yeah. He probably experienced, like, was there an active war when he enlisted into the military? I don't think so. No. If there is, I don't, I don't, I didn't talk to my notes if there was. Okay. A book published in 2013 by Stephanie Bennett claims that a man named Joe Quinn, who also had numerous aliases, was the actual killer of the Murphys. While researching criminals in the Gatton area at the time of the murders, she came across Quinn, who was employed as a swagman, which is someone who walked from farm to farm to work as a laborer. Okay, so kind of like a con- an independent contractor. Apparently, he was known as a bit of a habitual criminal and a key member of the 1891 Australian Shearer Strike, which was a dispute between union and non-union wool workers. And he had a bit of a personal vendetta against Michael Murphy. Michael had exposed Quinn as a felon when he happened to find out that he was posing as a barber. As Quinn languished in jail, he swore that he would murder Michael for what he'd done. And according to Bennett, Four years later, Quinn, along with the help of a local gang, did just that. Fun fact, one of the men that made up Quinn's gang was Thomas Day. Oh, it all becomes clearer now. And 120 years later, the people of Australia are still trying to find answers as to who killed the Murphy children and why. I'm really upset that the family didn't care. I am too. Like, that sucks. Like, you can be, you can be terrible people in a terrible family. But to not care at all, it sucks. Yeah. Which makes me think, like, with their dismissiveness, too, like, what were they hiding that they didn't want to be a part of the public? Mm-hmm. What kind of shady boots business were they into? Well, and it's like, were they aware of what Michael had been doing as far as his premarital dalliances with some mm-hmm. local ladies? And I did read something that went into more detail about that aspect of the case but yeah. because it was a personal retelling and I couldn't verify the information anywhere else. I did not include that information. Yeah, that would be a tough call. So I didn't go too deep into it. But apparently, at least according to the author of the article that I read, very young girls constituted them being 18 while at the time he was 27. Gross. So not super bad, not like... He was just a creep. He was just a creep. He wasn't a child predator, so... Yeah, but if if those people had made it seem, like if they, if they felt like he was a child predator, 
that would make up for the violence. And if they were after him, the other two girls were just consolations. Yeah. Extras. Well, gross. Thank you for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Hey, true crime fans. Have you ever been reading about a case and suddenly find yourself down a wormhole with no way out? Then the One Crime at a Time podcast is for you. Sit back, relax, listen, and laugh as we jump in the hole for you to bring you the stories you only thought you knew. Join us weekly as we dive in one crime at a time. And this week's podcast plug is the One Crime at a Time podcast. And I really enjoy listening to these two ladies talk true crime. They're really sassy and they like hold nothing back. So they're, yeah. they're like two Southern ladies and it's hilarious. Their banter and giggles are delightful. And it just feels like you could just like sit down with like a cup of coffee and some breakfast treats and just like listen to them and like chat mm-hmm. about whatever the cases are they're talking about. Nice. So I encourage you to. Click the link in our show notes to listen to Shannon and Christina and hear them dive into the darkness one crime at a time. Awesome. And this week's listener question comes from Emily of the Pineapple Pizza Podcast. Hey, Emily. She wants to know if you could know one truth about existence, the universe, anything, what would you want to know? What is in the ocean? (laughs) What is in the ocean? What is down there? I need to know. <laughs> I know that was a quick turnaround. Was but like, so quick. <laughs> no time to think about that. <laughs> Spend so much try- time just trying to get into space when we haven't even explored like 10% of the ocean and the earth. And like every time, every time we're curious, there's like some prehistoric nightmare that's like the first octopus ever and we're like oh never mind we're good we're gonna wait another 15 years until we go back down but like the mariana trench mm-hmm. we've like barely dipped our toes in it mm-hmm. i want to know i want to know really bad what about you okay i think the ocean's terrifying so i'd rather be ignorant let's see what do i really want to know where are the pyramids made by aliens hmm. i'm just curious yeah they were perfectly made. And I would like to think they weren't made on the backs of slaves, mm-hmm. like we were told. Mm-hmm. But like, it's probably built on the backs of, the backs of slaves, like we were told. Mm-hmm. But I would much rather take aliens over that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Cool. So what's something good you'd like to share this week? Well, I got to watch your, your kiddos this weekend mm-hmm. for the first time in like almost two years. And I don't normally get the privilege to watch them just because my blood sugars are pretty erratic whenever I watch children. <laughs> like it, they crash pretty fast just because I, I have a harder time paying attention to myself and what my body needs. And it's harder to kind of step away and eat a snack unless they have a snack too. And mm-hmm. so it was nice to be able to watch them comfortably. And we made jewelry boxes out of Legos and played ping pong and decorated cookies and it was super fun and it was kind of my first real taste of normalcy since the pandemic started and it was it was really nice mm-hmm. but yeah I was super tired afterwards so oh, when, yeah, you, that- when you when you got him I was like cool 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 cool, cool. <laughs> yeah 
I napped immediately after. Yep. But yeah, what's one good thing for you? Along with that, I Thomas and I were finally able to take a weekend away for the first time mm-hmm. in like 18 months to attend one of my friend's weddings in Wisconsin. And mm-hmm. I really enjoyed being able to just relax and be in the moment and not stress about anything and not have to worry mm-hmm. about the kids fighting with each other or yelling and or bugging on the dog and all this stuff. So that was really like relaxing. Mm-hmm. And it was nice to pretend that everything was normal again, even though things yeah. were normal yet. But you were able to feel safer and comfortable in the environment you were in. Yeah. I mean, both Thomas and I are vaccinated. We still had our masks with us. The ceremony was outdoors. It wasn't a huge wedding. I would guess between 75 and 100 people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still it's still the largest group that I've been around since before the pandemic started. Yeah. So I was a little antsy, but. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It's weird getting back to that. Yeah. But for the most part, I mean, we were outside for a lot of it. When we were inside for the dinner and stuff, our table was towards the back of the room. So we weren't super close to a lot of other people. Like we weren't surrounded mm-hmm. by other people, which made me feel a little bit more comfortable. So that's awesome. Yeah. It was just kind of nice to be able to just relax and drink a little bit and chill out. Put your hair down. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yep. Good weekend head by all. Yeah. Shall we? We shall. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. We're also on YouTube. You can find us by either clicking the link in our show notes or by searching for Yield Crime Podcast. You can write to us. We have a P.O. box. Mm-hmm. Send us whatever at Yield Crime Podcast, P.O. Box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota, 55092. You can also email us at yeoldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We are running very low on questions. So if you'd like to send us some questions for us to answer, we would love that. Mm -hmm. It can be about whatever you want. Just nothing too crazy personal. I'm not going to give you my social security number. I might. Who knows? Try. A great way to support the show if you want to help us but can't necessarily do so financially would be to leave a five-star rating and review on either Apple, Podchaser, or you can do it on Podbean as well. And this is a five-star review we received from the Unpredictably Us podcast. And they say, these ladies are awesome. I love mm-hmm. their vibe and energy they have together. Very well-researched and awesome storytelling. I listened to their Nursery Rhyme to Die For episode first and was captivated by the way they told the story. Can't wait to keep listening. Nice. Thank you. That was the Marianne Cotton episode. Ugh. Yeah. Woof. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so on Buy Me a Coffee. Mm-hmm. You can also join our Patreon for as low as a dollar a month and enjoy early ad-free access to our episodes, as well as more bonus content, depending on what tier you join at. We have mm-hmm. one, five, ten, and fifteen dollar tiers. There is also going to be another sale on our Tea Public store this week. You can enjoy 35% off May 27th through the 31st. Nice. Go ahead and get your swag on. Mm-hmm. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. <laughs>